This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. I looked down at my foot and I could see that um, a big part of my, my foot had been blown away. The back of my heel had been blown away, that the wound was, was wide open. Every day, just about, somebody was injured by a landmine and they were rushed off to Cowie Dung Hospital to be uh, have their legs amputated. The first memory is the very day that I entered the hospital for uh, war victims of the Red Cross. And uh, I realised that... Uh, all these people were without one or two legs. Today's programme marks the first in our occasional series on treaties that have changed our lives. Today, we'll look at the Ottawa Convention banning anti-personnel landmines. This has been an extremely successful treaty. It has made a real difference on the ground because it has saved so many lives and so many limbs and so many livelihoods. Every morning when I get up in the morning, I put on my artificial leg. That's something that I will do every day for the rest of my life. We'll hear from the people who have lived with landmines, the survivors, the doctors and the campaigners about their lives, their determination to ban these weapons and how they achieved that goal. Our story starts in Afghanistan in 1990. My name is uh, Alberto Cairo. I am the head of the um, physical rehabilitation program of the ICRC, the International Committee of Red Cross in Afghanistan. I've been here for, uh, in Afghanistan for uh, almost 31 years now. I can't believe it, but it is true. Alberto Cairo runs the ICRC's Physical Rehabilitation Centre in Kabul, supporting landmine survivors to become mobile again with therapy and prosthetic limbs. Sometimes I am asked, uh, what is your first uh, memory of Afghanistan? The first memory is the very day that I entered the e-ward of the um, hospital for uh, war victims of the Red Cross. It was a big room with uh, more or less uh, 70, 80 beds, all of them with people inside. And when I was walking, I realized that all these people were without one or two legs. And uh, the feeling, my feeling is that, oh my God, this is what I... I have to face every day. Will uh, will I be able to do anything? And then that it's the very moment that I realized that I was in a in a place uh, at war. You know, war is uh, you can uh, watch it in television uh, through films. Uh, you can read the things in newspaper, uh, but to be there, I could smell it. I could sense this this terrible suffering that was going there, the tragedy of the war. That was the memory, the first things that, and that was was Kabul at that time. Tell me about some of your patients, because I think sometimes far distant from from somewhere like Afghanistan and living fortunately in a country which is not contaminated with landmines, we tend to forget the lifelong damage that they can do. Oh, yeah. That's, That's forever. Imagine that if someone suddenly, suddenly, for some reason, uh, tore your leg off your body, suddenly. And then you can imagine the pain, the, the, the despair, the, the shock, the fear, the terror. 
And that's not something that is going to end tomorrow or after one month. That is for the rest of your life. It is something that someone has taken away from you. And that's forever. And then it will affect forever your life and not only your life, but for sure the life of your family, of your community. It's terrible. So the problem, this when we speak of these landmines, is something that is a problem that even if tomorrow, from today, there was not a single new victim of landmines, there is enough for the next 50 years. Sometimes I, when I think, when I see people that have lost one or two legs smiling and trying to, to, to start again a life, I, 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 I really... I don't know what to think. I think they are so brave, so resilient. So I'm so proud of them because I'm not sure if I would be able to do the same. Baghdad tonight, under heavy bombardment, on the day the war started. From Afghanistan, our story moves to Iraq. And in the air. Massive ground assault is underway. I'm going to talk to someone who knows all about trying to start again after a landmine injury. Audio quality is okay, is it? Yes, it is. It's very good. Good. You know your stuff. I knew I could (laughs) rely on you. You've got a good headset and it's all. He happens to be a wonderful colleague of mine. I'm Stuart Hughes and I'm a senior world affairs producer with BBC News based in London. I spend about half the time working in London and half the time traveling uh, the world. So I guess you could say I've seen a lot and and been to a lot of places, worked in foreign news, man and boy, I suppose, for over 20 years and uh, still doing it and still enjoying it. Do you want to tell me about what happened in Iraq? Sure. Um, I was asked to travel to Iraq uh, for the BBC in 2003. Uh, It was um, February 2003, just before the Iraq the second Iraq war started and we were in a town uh, called Cham Chamal, about 80 miles or so from Baghdad. It was the front line between the Kurdish areas and the area controlled by Saddam Hussein. And a couple of nights before we arrived, those forces who were in a defensive position had disappeared. We weren't quite sure where they'd gone, how far they'd gone, but it was a sign that, uh, that those front line positions were starting to fall. And we drove up to the area. We had a Kurdish Peshmerga soldier with us, and he assured us that the area was safe. But uh, unfortunately, his his information was was incorrect. And as I stepped out of the jeep initially, I just heard a bang and fell to the floor. I knew that that I'd been injured in some way, and it was our translator Rabin who shouted, "Landmines! It's landmines!" I looked down at my foot, and I could see that. Um, a big part of my my foot had been blown away. The back of my heel had been blown away. The, the wound was was wide open. I was flown then back to the UK, uh, and it was a civilian doctor who looked at my medical notes and took one look at my foot, and he said, "Well, we can try and rebuild your foot. We don't think it's going to work. We don't think uh, 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 we're, we're able to save it." You know, I was thirty one years old, active, fit, wanted to get back to work, um, and so. Five days after stepping on the landmine, my, my right leg was amputated below the knee and and I started life as a landmine survivor. You have naturally an incredibly detailed memory of what happened to you. I'm thinking now this is a bit like what Alberto Cairo talked to me about Afghanistan. It's one moment, but it's it's forever. Yeah, and I didn't realise that at the time. I remember the one thought that went through my head, 
I thought this could be my last memories. You know, at that stage, I thought very clearly, I thought I could die. This could be where it ends. And I remember lying there in the grass with my my foot in pieces, thinking, you know, in this this bit of scrubland in northern Iraq, thinking, is this how it ends? Is this is this? This didn't feel as glamorous as the movies make it out to be. Not that I'm so naive as to think that that life is like the movies, and certainly that combat is like the movies. But you're right, as Alberto said, this is this is a forever moment. Every morning, ever since that day in April. 2003 every morning long after the Iraq war is over every morning when I get up in the morning I put on my artificial leg that's something that I will do every day for the rest of my life and I don't think about it all the time I'm aware of it sometimes something will go wrong either mechanically with my artificial leg and I'll be reminded of it or you know I'll go for a long walk and it'll start to ache or or hurt but I don't think about it all the time but it is something that random moment in Iraq is is one of the defining moments of my life. I try not to make it the defining moment of my life, but it's something that's always there. That random landmine, I'll never know who planted it. I'll never know why they planted it, but it has become, you know, a big part of my life. And all of that for some little bit of plastic and explosives that cost a few dollars, you know, $3 worth of landmine has had a pretty major impact on on one person's life. And this is what they're finding here in Tikrit. Here we have the pressure plate. It was a device exactly like this that killed a little girl two weeks ago. Over decades, millions upon millions of landmines were laid around the world, in towns, cities, on farmland, in school playgrounds, lying in wait until someone, a child, an elderly person... A journalist like Stuart put a foot tragically wrong. No weapon is more indiscriminate than a landmine, exploding sometimes years after a conflict is finished, destroying and disrupting the lives of people who had no part in any war. I have accident by landmine with my family, and three people die, and my father and my sister and my brother die. Chin Boryak's father was cutting down a tree when a landmine lodged in the branches detonated. In a split second, he lost his arm and his family. He was nine years old. Thousands of miles away in Cambodia, one of the most mined countries in the world, Sister Denise Cochlin and her colleague Tun Chanaret had long been aware of the horror of landmines. Today they worked together at a landmine survivor support centre in Siem Rep, where I joined them via a slightly temperamental internet connection. Do you want to be called Tun Chanaret? Tun Chanaret or Red, no problem at all. Well, I was in the refugee camps on the Thai-Cambodian border, and every day, just about, somebody was injured by a landmine, like my friend Tun Chanaret, and they were rushed off to Kaui Dung Hospital to be uh, have their legs amputated or to go through a very traumatic experience. And I can remember walking around the camp saying, These weapons should be banned, but I didn't really do anything about it except make a big noise, except these weapons should be banned. Denise got to know Tun Chanaret through her work with landmine survivors. He is one himself. 18 December 1982, when I stood on antipersonal landmine, they sent me to the international uh, hospital we call ICRC hospital. And there I 
amazing because there are so many people stood on antipersonal landmine. Some of them lost arm and legs, especially I lost my both legs. You lost your legs in a landmine. Did you lose hope? Of course, I lose hope, but much better than I try my best, you know. Tun Chanaret lost his legs in 1982. He has lived for almost 40 years in a wheelchair. But in the early 1990s, that noise Denise was making, expressing her horror at the effects of landmines, or Tun Chanaret's determination, as he says, to do his best, began to attract support from disarmament groups, among them Steve Goose of Human Rights Watch, and the campaign for a worldwide ban had begun. Well, when we started the campaign, late 1992, we had no supporters among governments at all. Uh, No one had thought about the idea of a ban on these weapons, even though they had been in existence for decades and decades. Uh, There were some 120 countries who had anti-personnel mines in their inventories, in their arsenals. So they were considered a very normal thing by all governments when we first started. Everybody told us that uh, this was a pie-in-the-sky thinking to believe that we could possibly get a ban on these weapons. We were called utopian and, and things much worse than that. And that was the first thing, was getting people to pay attention. And we did that largely through our research efforts and our publications and our advocacy. Once we started putting the facts and figures, advocates who were actually landmine survivors uh, out in front of the governments, they came around fairly quickly. Reluctantly, I should say, reluctantly, but still in the grand scheme of things fairly quickly. It was really only five years from when we started the campaign until we had a treaty. Actually, I remember that campaign really well, and I remember it got real momentum. It seemed like one moment nobody was talking about landmines, and then the next moment everybody was talking about them. Did you set out to to make it a kind of kind of populist issue? Yes, we um, we didn't want it to be a controversial issue, but we did very consciously go after the political leaders because we knew the only way to do this was to have the political leaders tell the militaries that they had to remove these things from their war plans. The militaries quite naturally want to hold on to anything and everything that they have, especially if it has been part of their, um, their, their war scenarios for decades upon decades. So we very consciously tried to build political support um, rather than trying to directly engage with the military, although we did that uh, as well, and ended up having many, many supporters on the military side of things. It was uh, shocking how often you would talk to um, uh, General this or General that, and they would say to you in private, well, my personal opinion is that we could get rid of these weapons and that they're horrific, but my public position has to be that we need these weapons in order to defend our troops. I am not a political figure, and as I said at the time, and I'd like to reiterate now, my interests humanitarian. The campaign gained momentum from some very high-profile supporters. Diana, Princess of Wales. Hang on, three seconds. One, two, three, firing. One of my objectives in visiting Angola was to forward the cause of those like the International Red Cross striving in the name of humanity to secure an international ban on these weapons. Chris got the world's favourite princess on side, didn't you? Yes, that uh, was very important in building public support uh, for the campaign and, and, and for the issue. 
she was quite hampered in, in her efforts because the UK didn't come around on this issue until the very last minute. So they did not want her going out and talking about a ban on the weapons. They were okay with her going out and talking about the victims and the need for mine clearance. But um, she was very, very uh, circumspect when it came to talking about an actual ban on the weapon. But the, the degree of attention she brought to the issue was just fantastic. And as the campaign gathered pace, protests took place around the world. There was a real awareness and mobilization of the general public, evident in the dozens of pyramids of shoes that took place throughout Europe. Pyramids of shoes, symbolizing the injuries landmines cause, began to appear outside parliaments. Many powerful groups were involved. The International Committee of the Red Cross, drawing on Alberto's experiences with landmine survivors, pushed hard for the ban, and the international campaign to ban landmines was recognised for its work. It was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. The worldwide battle against landmines came to the nation's capital. Cambodia's Tun Chanaret received it on the group's behalf. Amazing, I tell you, to amazing. I never, when I received the Nobel Peace Prize, and that day, I really, really proud in my heart, especially uh, we try our heart. But we not, we, we not stop until the land finished for the clean. You're not going to stop until the landmines are all gone. Yeah, all landmines gone, all cluster gone, all bomb gone. I continue until the end of my life. I have a worry that there are several countries left that are not interested in signing the International Ban Treaty in Ottawa in December. In the mid-1990s, Tun Chanaret and other landmine survivors campaigned around the world. And little by little, governments were almost shamed into supporting what became the Ottawa Convention. I'm not so worried about myself as I am for the future of the children of Cambodia. The future is bleak for those people who have landmines as their introduction to adulthood. Denise, Alberto and Steve remember exactly where they were when they knew their efforts would be successful. Well, it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary year, 1997. Um, We were trooping to different parts of the world uh, at different times. But I I remember especially the day that the Nobel Peace Prize was announced. I remember that. And we were sitting in our little old dining room in, in Phnom Penh and suddenly the news came on the BBC and we started shrieking and yelling and everybody was hopping around or riding around in their wheelchairs, um, just shouting for joy. But while the Nobel Peace Prize was kind of a magic moment, the even more magic moment, I think, was the Ottawa Treaty. And it was so wonderful in Ottawa, in the freezing cold, um, when Rhett was called in to represent Cambodia to, um, to receive the, the Ottawa Treaty on behalf of the of civil society of Cambodia. At the time, you know, the communication, there was no internet, there was uh, no television, uh, there was uh, during the Taliban time, so there was a, a blackout on information. But we knew. Personally, I was so happy because uh, I hoped that something like this was going to happen, but... Uh, I did not believe very much. It was a very an incredible moment because even if we were a bit skeptical that that was going to be implemented, but it was something, something that it was decided. The world had decided that the landmines were bad. 
had to be banned. So that was an incredible moment. So, I mean, I was so, so happy. We've had uh, two weeks of very intense negotiations. We were never sure if, the, if we were going to get to a successful conclusion or not. The United States was there and was opposing um, many of the good measures that were being proposed for the treaty and was introducing very weakening amendments to the treaty. Uh, and so we weren't sure until we got to the very end, really, that we were going to be so successful. Uh, and when they brought down that gavel in Oslo in September of 1997, that was the most special moment of my life, uh, other perhaps than having, uh, having a few children. In 1997 in Oslo, the convention was adopted. Later that year in Ottawa, 121 countries signed it. The signing of this historic treaty at the very end of this century is this generation's pledge to the future. It's a bridge across the millennial divide. Today, 164 have ratified it, with some notable exceptions. The United States, China and Russia. Still, even they appear to be honouring it, and it is, Steve believes, one of the most successful disarmament treaties of all time. There's no question uh, that this has been an extremely successful treaty, that it has made a real difference on the ground, uh, primarily because it has saved so many lives and so many limbs and so many livelihoods. Um, the, the human value of this uh, is tremendous. And that's unusual for disarmament treaties. It's even unusual for humanitarian law treaties to have this kind of direct impact. It has cut the number of casualties that occur each and every year. When we were starting the campaign, 26,000 or more people a year were being killed and maimed by landmines. That number now, um, last year, was about 5,000. That statistic is tremendous. And, and we've, seen, we've seen lots of other ways that it has made a, a tangible difference as well. For example, the treaty not only prohibits the use of the weapon, it also requires the destruction of stockpiles. The state's parties to the treaty have destroyed more than 55 million stockpiled anti-personnel mines. That's 55 million mines that never go into the ground. 55 million minds that never take a victim. You're still involved, of course, in arms control. You've been involved in the cluster munitions campaign. You're now involved in the lethal autonomous weapons. Do you think the campaign against landmines really focused people's attention on the kinds of weapons we use? Look at them and say, OK, we do have wars, but some weapons are acceptable and others are really not. Yeah, there's no question that this treaty has served that broader purpose. The fact that it has spawned several new industries even. Um, there was no such thing as humanitarian demining really before the treaty came about. Uh, victim assistance programs are so much more professional now than they were. But it has also given birth to what is called by many people now humanitarian disarmament. A disarmament that is focused not on narrow national security grounds, but on broader human security grounds and on the importance of putting the civilians first. And this treaty has uh, helped bring that to the fore in things like the ban on cluster munitions, uh, the efforts that are underway right now to ban fully autonomous weapons, killer robots, the efforts that are underway right now to uh, avoid the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. And these have all grown directly out of the effort that brought about the uh, mine ban treaty. The Ottawa Convention was a huge step forward and it has saved many lives. 
But as this mine information video explains, there are still millions of landmines to be cleared. It's not a problem that's going to end anytime soon. My colleague Stuart lost his leg six years after Ottawa. At the present rate of clearance, it would still take 500 years to remove all the buried explosive devices around the world. He's back at work. He can walk and run. But his experience shows that a treaty alone can never repair the damage landmines cause. I started suffering from from terrible anxiety and insomnia, depression, and and I I I wasn't altogether surprised. But I thought, why now? You know, it's a couple of years after I've been injured. I should be should be better now. Why now? And and I I I was later diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder, and that was by far more devastating for me and for my family than the physical injury. And I've said many times that if I could have done a bargain with the landmine gods, I would have happily have given my other leg to have not suffered a psychological injury as well as a physical injury. I didn't go out socially for about two years. I just couldn't be around people. I couldn't be in a crowd. I just wanted to be myself again. But because of the psychological injury, for some reason I didn't understand, I couldn't be. And that is the hidden side of of, of the landmine problem. The long-term consequences of that can be a lot more devastating and a lot more invisible. And in some ways it's more difficult to, to explain to people, well, yeah, yeah, you know, I've lost my leg. But that was the easy part. The impact on myself, on my family, on my loved ones, on my ability to work, on my ability to be a functioning member of society were impacted much more by the psychological consequences of landmines than by the physical consequences. We started this programme with Alberto Cairo in Kabul, a man who has been treating landmine survivors for over 30 years. He knows that work will be needed for many years to come. So, to end this edition of Inside Geneva... I asked him to reflect on the impact of the Ottawa Convention and to tell us what still needs to be done. Well, the impact is, of course, uh, there are still a lot of um, accidents every, every year. So every year now, we still register in our centres around 500 new uh, patients, people that have lost arms or legs, sometimes arms and legs. So this is... A real tragedy. So, but but uh, the feeling is that compared to years ago, the number is going down. So that's uh, there is a, there is an improvement. And uh, in any case, it is something so much needed. This uh, Ottawa Treaty, and then it's extremely important to keep the commitment because to be sure that this is really implemented always and everywhere. And I really hope that. The big countries like uh, United States, China, Russia, that have not ratified it, I really hope that they, they are going to do so. Because there is a moment that you, you are, if you don't sign it, for me, for, this is my personal opinion, if you don't ratify it, you endorse suffering. You endorse in some way the continuation of the use of these kind of bloody things, which is something that it's, I'm sorry, if they don't sign, for me, there is only one word, shame on them. That brings us to the end of Inside Geneva. 
My thanks for all the wonderful people who gave their time for this episode. Steve Goose, Denise Coughlin, Ton Chanaret, Alberto Cairo, and of course, Stuart Hughes. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. <laughs>